0: When well, you find people who have their own true identity, they're gonna
1: survive. If they ever make it, they're gonna survive because they're the one and only. It ain't but one Willie Nelson. I mean, let's be honest about it. Ain't nobody else like him, period. It's not two Willie Nelsons, it's just one.
2: That was Ray Charles sending praise from one American master to another as he saluted singer-songwriter Willie Nelson. As everyone who's ever listened to the radio or seen a television or touched a poster, I don't know, if you've ever interacted with pop culture, you know that he is a music icon, a staunch anti-war activist, a supporter of environmental rights, and, of course, a leader in the fight for the legalization of marijuana. With landmark albums like Shotgun Willie and Redheaded Stranger— Willie Nelson has sold more than 40 million records and is almost always on the road, feverishly touring the United States to this day. Growing up during the Great Depression, Willie Nelson pursued music from a very young age. We'll hear Willie talk about these early years navigating the music industry in Nashville, Tennessee, leading up to his notoriety as an outlaw of country music. He sat down with filmmaker Stephen Cantor for the 2002 documentary American Masters. Willie Nelson still is still moving.
1: I was born in Abbott, Texas, on uh, April 29th, 1933. And uh, my uh, grandparents raised me, and they were wonderful people. My my granddad was a blacksmith. And uh, he died when I was six years old. From there, my grandmother raised me and my sister by uh, cooking in school lunchrooms. And uh, that took us through school. There were cotton fields all around you, right? Yeah, well, Abbott is right in the middle of a whole lot of farms and ranches. So did, you, did you help out around the house? Well, that was the way we made our school money, was working in the fields and mowing yards, whatever there was to do. There wasn't that much to do, but we could bale hay or plow or do something for the farmers. <clears throat> that was a pretty good way to pick up a couple of bucks, pick cotton, pull corn. There was a lot of music out there on some days, and uh, sometimes when in the cotton-picking season there was a lot of different pickers out there. There was us, and then there was uh, uh, the Mexican cotton pickers, some who lived there, some had come in, and then there was the black cotton pickers. And So there was a whole lot of uh, uh, culture in the, the cotton patch. During those days, uh, And even earlier, my grandparents were music teachers, so they were always either singing or playing or writing music. you remember when you got your first instrument? I was six years old. My granddad gave me a guitar. Were your grandparents very musical? Well, they were very uh, knowledgeable uh, as far as music theory, and they taught that, and they taught voice. And uh, so, yeah, they were very good uh, music teachers. Um, can you tell that, a story about your
0: the, uh, the first, the first public performance?
1: Oh, yeah, I was about five years old, I guess, and uh, my grandmother had written a poem and I was supposed to recite it at the Brookin homecoming, which Brookin is a little country town, with a small school and a church and a tabernacle, and that's about it. And we were having an all-day singing dinner on the ground thing there at the Brookin homecoming. It was an annual thing. And I was supposed to get up and say this poem, and uh, I had on a little white sailor suit with red trim around it. And I started picking my nose, and then my nose started bleeding all over my, and then it was time for me to do my poem. So I went up there and held one side of my nose that was bleeding, and I said, what are you looking at me for? I ain't got nothing to say. If you don't like the looks of me, you can look some other way. And that was my first, uh, outing so I've never been scared uh, had never had uh, stage fright since uh, do you think performing was in your blood early on oh it was yeah I think so something that I always wanted to do I started writing poems when I was about five years old and started putting melodies to uh, when I was about six years old. seems I learned a few chords on the guitar
0: now when you when you left Abbott Got a few stops before you ended up in
1: Nashville. Can you talk a little about that? Oh, yeah, well, I went to the Air Force. I went to Baylor University after the Air Force, but I went to the Air Force first uh, when I was barely 17 years old, just out of high school. And stayed in there a while, and, uh, and then I got out and started working clubs again. Went to Baylor University, owned the GI Bill to uh, for the money that they were paying mainly. Uh, uh, I was majoring in whatever. And trying to find places to play music uh, on the weekends. And I uh, did that for a while. Played around Waco and West and. Towns around that area. Fort Worth, San Antonio uh, started doing. Radio shows out of San Antonio and Houston. And and then from Houston. Working clubs down there and doing more radio shows. Disc jockey in the daytime and a musician at night. Yeah, I was living in Pasadena and working in the Esquire Club, which was all the way across Houston, so uh, driving back and forth, I had a lot of time, so uh, and going over and coming back, so I wrote a lot of songs. Crazy uh, nightlife, funny how time slips away. And from there, I decided I'd go on to uh, Nashville and give Nashville a shot. I had uh, pretty much realized that the business end of the music business was either in Nashville, New York, uh, LA, Chicago. And for what I was trying to do, I felt like Nashville was the place to go and give it a shot and see what happened and either you know stay or come back. I didn't have a lot of money, I had just enough to get there. And uh, I hung out with uh, Billy Walker until I could uh, get a job making money, started out, selling encyclopedias, uh, which I had done before, so I just sort of picked up uh, a set of encyclopedias and started knocking doors and selling those. And that lasted me until I signed up with Pamper Music as a songwriter. Hank Cochran had heard some of my songs and he liked the way I wrote, and he was writing for Pamper Music at that time. And uh, he was supposed to be getting a $50-a-week raise. And uh, Hal Smith had said that they couldn't afford to hire another writer right now. So uh, Hank said, well, give uh, Willie my $50-a-week raise. So that was the first time that I'd ever been signed you know, to write professionally. And it was for $50-a-week for Pamper Music, uh, thanks to Hank Cochran. Roger Miller, Hank Cochran, Harlan Howard, Ray Pennington would uh, hang out in the mornings uh, and we'd play the songs for each other that we'd written the night before and just to pass them around to see what everybody thought about them because we were all on a weekly Uh, draw against our royalties, you know, so we were trying to earn our money, so every day we would try to have a new song when we came in. Was the
0: encyclopedia salesman training helpful in kind of peddling your music?
1: (laughs) Well, Patsy's husband, a guy named Charlie Dick. Uh, I ran into him at Tootsie's, and uh, we were having a beer, and having a few beers, really, and uh, Hank Cochran was there, and... Uh, They had heard Crazy, they'd heard my version of it. And so they wanted it for Patsy, and they wanted to go over and play it for Patsy. And it was after midnight, so I wasn't really sure Patsy was ready for a bunch of drunks over at her house, you know, pitching songs. So I wouldn't get out of the car. I let Hank and Charlie go in, and they talked, well, Patsy uh, came out to the car and talked me to, to coming in. Heard the song and uh, liked it, recorded it the next day. To have gotten crazy recorded by her at that period was was quite a thing. That was a a home run. But it was really hard for a guy with uh, a strange way of singing and phrasing and writing and everything to to be in Nashville at that time because there were just ways that things were done. And... uh, They didn't like change that much, and they didn't like difference that much either. And it wasn't really their fault, because I didn't know what to tell them what I was. You know, I I wasn't really country, I wasn't really rock and roll. But I could play a little bit of all those things, and and I I felt like country was my strongest suit. Uh, But at that particular time, my kind of country, which was Fiddles, guitars, and uh, Ray Price country was kind of on the way out, and they were going to more voices and other directions, and I kind of hit it in the crack there. Uh, I played bass for Ray at a time when things were really good, and country music sounded like Ray Price and Hank Williams, and, uh, and then about that time was when it sort of moved around a little bit, and the next thing you know, you're, instead of singing with a dance band, you're singing with a smooth, you know, strings and voices, and uh, it's a little different. How did you come to be in Ray Price's band? Donnie Young, who later became Johnny Paycheck, was working uh, in Ray's band playing bass, and left somewhere in Nebraska or somewhere. And at that time, I was writing songs for Ray Price's publishing company. He was part owner of Pamper Music. So he called and asked me if I could play bass, and I said, Sure, can't everybody? <laughs> and uh, of course, I'd never played bass in my life. But on the way to the gig, uh, Jimmy Day taught me the Ray Price show and how to play the bass. And uh, fortunately, playing the bass is similar to a guitar, so I picked it up pretty quick. I wasn't really a bass player, but I, I got by.
0: I guess Ray was impressed enough to keep you in the band for a while.
1: Well, I'm not sure, you know, uh, I was writing for him, so he couldn't very well fire me (laughs) right away. Maybe he started looking for another bass player pretty quick, but uh, uh, I stayed with him about a year. Did did Ray play any of your songs? Well, yeah, he did Nightlife, and uh, he did two or three more songs and albums after that. Uh, I killed one of his roosters one time, and that, pissed him off for a couple of years he wouldn't record any of my songs but he got so much mileage out of the rooster story that he (laughs) i think he wanted me to shoot another one so he could tell about it i was real wise in those days when ray was riding in the front of the bus and uh, with the driver and uh, i was in the back playing poker with jimmy day and shorty lavender and uh pete wade and Ray called back and said, hey, uh, come up here and help me write this song, because we wrote together back then. And I said, F- you, I can make more money up here playing poker. So he went on and wrote the song, which, turned, which Soft Rain turned out to be a number one song. And I wound up losing a couple of hundred dollars in the poker game. We had a lot of fun. Everyone was drinking pretty much back in those days, and, uh, or, you know, whatever pill was going around. And uh, a lot had a lot of long nights, and Ray was as bad as we were, you know. He had as much fun as we did.
0: I've got some friends that are songwriters now, and I know there's, like, big lag time between when they sell a song and actually getting paid for it. Was that the same thing back then?
1: Oh, yeah, there still is. Uh, yeah, uh, it was you know, several months really before you started. So I had money coming. Eventually, I just hadn't started getting it yet. I was, but I was uh, you know, making you know, fairly good money playing bass with Ray. You lived in a trailer park. Yeah, I lived in the same trailer, in the same trailer park and in the same trailer house as Hank Cochran did and Roger Miller before me. And it was just coincidental.
0: I can imagine getting to know you that you probably might have had a tendency to live beyond your means.
1: I always felt like that if I could go out $50,000 in debt, I would have been successful. My kids would have to pay it back and I wouldn't have to worry about it. And it would be good education for them. So,
0: I'm curious if, if you're approaching writing, if writing is your primary source of making money, were you, did you write better out of uh, when there was need or hunger in your family? you sit down and feel like you
1: had to write oh i think so back in the early days of writing you was writing for a lot of reasons to prove you could write and to also to get the money and to feel like you were earning the money you were getting uh yeah it was a lot of reasons to write
0: um what was it what was it like to see these obvious lesser lights in nashville becoming huge country stars and climbing the charts and you not getting the recording contracts
1: oh that's not anything new <laughs> I mean that's 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 uh, I turn on the TV now and I see movies that are being made I wonder how in the hell do they get the money to make that movie when I have this great script here and I can't get anybody to read it so it's the same way in the music business it's you know I can't understand it
0: was it frustrating to be writing something that was so, writing songs were so deeply personal and meaningful to you, and not have them be not you not be the person recording them, and not have Nashville really?
1: Not really. Uh, knowing them and writing them and singing them is, uh, you know, if somebody else does that too, that's fine. But if they don't, that's fine also. Uh, I'm. It's hard to pick out your favorite songs. just trying to pick out like your favorite kids or something, and you like them all for different reasons. And you like to see other people sing them, and uh, you know, and, and have fun with them. In Nashville,
0: you you hit a point where it's, it seems to me like you kind of hung it up and became
1: a hog farmer. I was waiting, really. Uh, I, I really wasn't frustrated. I wasn't impatient. I knew that I had, first of all, uh, uh, agreed to stay here in this spot and do this until uh, the end of my uh, term with uh, the record company that I was with. And I uh, just was not happening with that record company. And I felt like that once I got with a new one, maybe I'd have a better shot, maybe not. Uh, But either way, I could uh, at least try another route, you know. So in the meantime, I was just biding my time and taking some time off. And I was earning money as a songwriter. So I was lucky enough to be able to sit still for a year or two and just write songs and raise hogs. A lot of other people upset over Nashville more than I was. I left because I wanted to go back to Texas, and I wanted to come back here. Nothing against Nashville. Uh, Back down here, I uh, I was a little frustrated at the, at the record company people who didn't really understand the music business or the music fans uh, like I did, uh, especially mine. So I came back down here where I knew my fans and my fans knew me. Uh, I was sort of an outsider in Nashville anyway. I found a scene going on down here in Austin that I really liked. I saw a bunch of young people letting their hair down and grow and uh, going back to blue jeans and t-shirts and enjoying music and people and having a good time. So I wanted to return to that. I remember that as a part of my youth. And it was like coming back home literally for me. Uh, It wasn't a big stretch for me to wear blue jeans and t-shirts and tennis shoes. I grew up in them. Uh, Wasn't a big stretch to let my hair grow. Uh, So it was really a lot easier for me to come back. And I wasn't, I had just gotten tired of trying to fit into that mode, uh, which I really didn't fit into you're supposed to do one thing this way and one thing that way uh you know the show must go on type thing and you wear this you look this way you look that way and there's people telling you what to do and i never did really uh, prosper <laughs> listening to a lot of those people
0: what do you think is important in life and what are your golden rules
1: well after everything that i've read has is, is proven to me that the most important thing in life is what's going on right this minute because that's the only thing that we're sure of and uh, it sounds like an oversimplification but it's not does that work for you seems to be doing okay it's good for me it's good for you (laughs) believe in reincarnation yeah yeah i do what do you believe well, I believe, you know, that it's more likely that we have been here many times before and we will be back many times. I don't think anybody could be expected to get it right in one time through. you come back with different life forms? Or... I think you come back in different grades, you know, you're a senior, a junior, freshman, whatever. Uh, you fail, you've got to come back and take those tests again. So what grade are you in? I'm <laughs> just coming out of grammar school now, I think
0: so you, does that mean you're a new soul?,
1: I didn't say that I'm uh, just stubborn. <laughs> Hard head makes a sore ass, I think is what my old mother used to say. new soul or old soul old soul <laughs> there's dumb souls and smart souls, and I'm you know i'm I'm one of the dumber ones, so you know, I know some smart ones. you're pretty smart one you're not that smart, or you'd be eating good Mexican food right now.
0: <laughs> How would you like people
1: remember you? It's to have a, 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 put a sign on the tombstone that says, what the f- was that? <laughs>
2: The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Cristiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Sunashima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresden. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org americanmasters American Masters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.